0: my profession and training is in medicine not in agriculture but uh, when i was a kid my dad grew a garden and i have grown some gardens since then and uh, as i got more on my own and my adult life i realized that gardening was something i really liked to do and so i have uh, pretty much everywhere i've been i've when i'm not on duty of some kind I've got a garden going out in the backyard. And over the years, I've uh, done lots of different things in the garden. And uh, I remember when I first read John Jevons' Grow More Vegetables. Uh, some of you are familiar with his, the uh, double dig beds, and you dig them down, and then you dig that lower layer and really loosen up everything and get them going there. And uh, wow, it grew some really good stuff. Uh, Over the years, I've learned other ways of doing things, and a lot of times I've learned that things are simpler. There are easier ways to do things. And uh, God designed things to work in a certain way, and the more you cooperate with the way nature runs, the better off you are. And my current gardening practices and I don't claim that they are the ultimate best I'm sure many of you have uh, things you can share with us uh, that could uh, improve on what I'm doing but uh, it really is simple Um, some of these slides are ones I had uh, you know sort of a follow-up to my previous ones about growing greens but uh, growing greens are sort of like growing anything else only easier So everything I'm saying, you know, while I may focus on the greens because I've really got a burden that you get your greens uh, and get the fresh greens from the garden, uh, it's the same thing. Those same plants can grow uh, fruits and seeds and many other parts that uh, make them uh, valuable there. So we'll go through and share with you some of the... uh, hopefully wisdom that I have learned over the years in uh, growing gardens here. Uh, This is a patch of greens growing out in my backyard here at one point. Uh, The average piece of food travels 1,500 miles from the farm to the supermarket. Um, I try more and more to bring mine down to the few feet from that backyard garden into uh, my kitchen, uh, you know, from the farm to the table. Uh, uh, There's a lot of stuff that is lost in the uh, timing of transition, even of good produce from the good uh, uh, supermarket shelf. Um, I read something once that fascinated me. They did a study on broccoli and they measured the nutrient contents of what was found in broccoli. And then they measure that contents using best industry practices in terms of harvesting, uh, you know, the right storage and packing and moving and getting to the grocery store. And in that time of best practices, and then they measured it as the grocer was sitting out on the shelf, set it out here, and if you went and picked it up you know, right there after he had put it out not let it sit in the grocery store for a few days, they measured the uh, contents there. Glucosinolates. You've probably heard uh, there's people talk about the advantages of the broccoli, cabbage, kale, this whole family of plants, and how beneficial they are in preventing cancer. There's these certain sulfur-containing molecules called glucosinolates which are so valuable in terms of uh, preventing cancer and treating cancer and I have said people making cabbage juices and you know there's all kinds of ways in which they use this particular family group because of these sulfur containing compounds which are unique to this particular group of plants and give them certain health benefits. 80% of those were lost between picking that in the um, you know when they picked it straight from the garden versus Just, you know, best practices getting to the grocery store and picking it off the shelf. So you go down here and you pick some broccoli in the grocery store. And, you know, of course, my first thing is, is it spongy and limp or is it still firm and crisp? You know, that's sort of my son. Oh, that's spongy and limp. That's probably not. But, you know, you go and you look for the... uh, That and does it still nice and green? Have a nice dark green color. You're starting to see some yellow on it. You know that that's really deteriorating. But you know, so you do your best practice to pick the best fresh stuff. Still, eighty percent of the glycosinolates lost. We talk about flavonoids. You know these phytochemicals. All of these things which have that wonderful anti-inflammatory properties, and we could go on and on. I mean, there's all of these are categories of molecules, not just a single molecule that is found in these plants. And so many of the health benefits relate to some of these here, 75% loss. The vitamin C, half of it was gone already. And so you are getting the best nice uh, even organic vegetables here in the grocery store that's still not as good as picking it yourself. You know, the other day just before I came out here, I was out picking some greens and stuff and saw the top coming on one of those broccoli things. I just kind of reached down and, you know, they're nice and crispy. You just snap it off. I just sat there and ate it. It's delicious, you know, straight from the garden. They've got really good flavor. You've got all your natural organic stuff and they're growing great there. It feels good to eat good food. And it is better for you. God meant us to live in the garden. That was his original plan, and as near as possible, he pushes back towards that plan. And it's easy to do, it's very simple to do, and you'd be amazed at the places you can do it. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about finding the perfect garden place and the right sun and the right everything. If you happen to be in a place right now that isn't that perfect gardening spot, you'd be amazed at what you still can do there, particularly when it comes to greens. Uh, this is my backyard, and, or a piece of the backyard there anyway. And you'll see the greens grow in there, where I grow them there. Now, you'll notice over here on this side, there's a big live oak tree here. That's a lot of the trunk of a large live oak tree, extends high above the garden right here. and. Uh, Now, if you oriented yourself with a compass, this is on the south side of my garden. My garden's on the north side of this big oak tree. Well, it happened to be a convenient spot behind the house and it was a place to put it. Now, any of you gardeners, do you plant on the north side of a tree? You know, you need sunlight, right, for photosynthesis. Now, it catches, you know, you know how the sun starts up here and it kind of makes an arc like this. It doesn't go straight overhead, you know, at our latitude. It goes around like this. And so I get some morning sun coming in from here in the afternoon. There's some afternoon sun as it sets down through these. It'll come between the trees. We'll hit some in here. But look at how great those greens are growing, Greens can grow in less than ideal sunlight. Um, now, if I was trying to grow tomatoes here or squash here or something that I wanted to mature the fruit, well I'm really limiting the input and how much you know nutrients you know I can you know how much sugar, how much starches I can build you know to put into the fruit right there, so it wouldn't be ideal for fruit, but where I live in uh, California there the summers get very hot and we will often go for a month at a time over 100 degrees during the day you know it's kind of hot and miserable out there one thing if you've lived in those kind of areas where the temperature is high and the sun is bright sun burns some of your plants you're going to have to shade some stuff peppers my peppers they get these burn spots on them I found I put them back here they didn't they didn't get burned they, that tree gave them some protection here so you'd be amazing how flexible it is but if you're looking to plant greens you don't need the perfect spot you know here with a, you know all of this shade for much of the day look look how vigorous and great they're growing there you give them the opportunity they'll take off and go um you know where I live there in central California we call it a winter garden is when I like to really put out the greens. Now all gardening is local. And so wherever you live your gardening timing is going to be different than someone living somewhere else. And my garden timing in you know central California is going to be very different if you're living up in the northeast or in Tennessee or uh, down in texas or wherever you are the climate is going to be different the weather is going to be different the highs and the lows temperatures the amount of frost or snow or lack thereof um, you know all of that's going to be different and you know when is the right timing is going to be a very local thing but the underlying principles are going to be the same wherever you are it's just when you do it is going to be different Uh, where i am in uh, down here in the uh, Central California, here September and October is a time to put out your what we call winter. In some places, you don't winter garden; everything's under you know deep snow. And so, what I call winter gardening is what you set out in the early spring and start off. But uh, I'm sure your local garden shops and people, if you don't already know your timing and pattern, will tell you when to do that there. Um, there's some of the red Russian kale there, one of my favorites there. Uh, again, this winter time in Central California, all of your cabbage-type plants do really good there. Swiss chard, uh, peas, I plant peas in October. The plants kind of go through the winter, and, you know, by February, we're, you know, picking peas. And then up until June, when it gets really hot, then they kind of... That's the end of those, that crops over when the the real hot heat hits there. But we call them the cool weather crops. For some people, these cool weather crops are year-round crops. You can just keep them going there. The um, cilantro, various types of greens here. Um, Again, some of the fruits of that, uh, what we call winter gardening, where I'm at, uh, high-end greens there. Um, So what do you do to grow them? You know, like I said, I've tried lots of things. Some things are very labor-intensive. I found some uh, pretty simple things seem to actually work really, really well. Loosening the soil. And I suddenly even realized even loosening the soil was optional. I mean, I used to dig and work and double-dig even, you know. And uh, the real key is what you put on top of it. How many of you have seen that video on the Internet, Back to Eden? Some of you know what I'm talking about. A gentleman up in, I believe, Oregon or Washington here somewhere uh, was thinking of all the work he was doing and said, God, there's got to be a... you know. And he went out in the forest and he looked and saw how vigorous and healthy all the trees of the forest were. But there was no farmer out there tending them nobody was disking or plowing or digging or you know deep tilling Uh, nobody was spreading fertilizer it all just happened and as he looked around at what was happening he looked at the forest floor and what was underneath the tree well there is about this thick layer of old pine needles and leaves and debris under there and you start to peel that back and underneath, deeper, it's composted, dark, black, brown stuff right there. And, well, further, there's worms and maybe some bugs in there, you know, over time there may be animal droppings or a dead animal that will die in there, but it's primarily just old vegetative matter that falls on the ground, it builds up in a thick layer, and it lives there. Um, and not only does it live there, A lot of little workers live there, you know. Besides the worms and the bugs you can see, there's a lot of smaller ones you can't see without a microscope. All of the various little uh, uh, nematodes and uh, uh, the protozoans and uh, uh, there's bacterias and uh, fungi, the molds. You start to realize, if any of you haven't read it or seen it, there's a book called Mycelium Running. How many of you have heard of that? I see only a couple of hands. Write that down somewhere if you're taking notes. Mycelium Running, written by a specialist in mushrooms. And he talks about the place of mushrooms in the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. And you start realizing these huge networks of myceliums. You know, they'll send up a f- flowering thing to make a mushroom at times. But what are they doing the rest of the time underground? All these little, they're spreading out in these networks, connecting with other ones. They connect with roots. They actually go inside roots and intertwine with roots in almost a, you'd say, parasitic, but not really parasitic. It's a symbiotic thing. And these, uh, you know, the roots of the plant go this far, but these uh, little mycelium from these fungi go way out farther all over the place and intertwine and connect. And they pick up nutrients way out there. They can pick up moisture way out there, track it back, and feed it to the plant. And in trade, the plant says, well, thank you. Let me give you some sugar and some amino acids I made with my leaves. And there is this sort of thing that go along together, and they work together. And they even allow one plant to work with another plant. There was a place where they went out in the forest and they took this tree. And then they took another tree at a far distance from it. And they measured and tracked it. And what they did, they took this tree and they covered it with this black drape, this black tarp to cut out sunlight. In other words, they cut off the photosynthesis from this tree. Well, what's that going to do to a tree? Any plant. You cut off photosynthesis so it doesn't get any sunlight. And then they took another tree of a different species that was hundreds of far away from this tree, far enough that their roots did not touch. They were, you know, in a different part. And they tagged this tree with some radioactive isotopes so they could trace it in the organic material that it was making. And after a period of time, they were getting traced. You know, radioactively traced organic material from here, sugars, amino acids, from this tag tree over here showing up in this tree. The mycelium, the fungi, were actually picking up from here, transporting it huge distances, and feeding this poor deficient tree now that wasn't getting anything. The trees help each other out. They work each other. They're this thing. And so the molds, the myceliums that live in this decaying organic material you're putting on the ground are a really, really important part of the chain of life that's going on there. And uh, the more you can cooperate with that and work with that, these things that God designed really work. In that book, though, any of you that haven't seen the Back to Eden video, just uh, Google it, because uh, on this website, you can watch it for free. There. It's about a you know, full-length movie. like But he just tells his story of planting. And he goes out, and he just gets to where the wood uh, shredders you know, shred up all kinds of tree branches. And he'll put underneath in his orchard, he'll put a foot to a foot and a half thick of just all this old mulched wood chips and leaves and stuff and piles it on top of the ground. He doesn't dig it in. He lays it on top of the ground, the way it comes in nature right there. And the slow release of these materials ends up providing the nutrients on an ongoing basis. It mulches the surface, keeps the moisture in. Uh, It's an amazing video. You really have to look at it. It'll help you catch into God's thing. Because he realized, yeah, This is how God's doing it. He's telling me something here. And so he went back and tried to reproduce that in his orchard. Amazing results. Uh, You know, totally organic. You just put this stuff out there and it works. So you loosen the soil. But again, even that's optional. The main thing is spreading this organic material on top of the ground. You're reproducing this environment where there's all of this material that has everything a plant needs in it. I mean if you think about it and I do this out of my orchard I've got all this wood stuff pile up this stuff under the trees and all of this any kind of natural organic material you can get put it under the trees there and uh, they grow great because if you think of it well a tree has all of the right nutrients in it so then you'd shred that tree up as that breaks down it's got all of the nutrients that a tree would need. So the roots and the myceliums and all these things, break it up. it's going to pick it up for you. Yeah, so back to our plan plant some seeds or the baby plants if you get the little already started ones, uh, and you water it. And that's all there is to it, you know? Uh, let's go ahead and take a loosen the soil. Um, and if you're going to loosen the soil, do it as simple and natural as possible. You know, it used to be I'd stick in my shovel, you know, and turn it over. Stick in the sho- one shovel at a time would spade and turn over the ground right there to, uh, you know, bury the weeds that were on top that I was digging under and uh, turn that over. And then I realized and learned from stuff I read that, you know, the soil is in layers, and that very top right next to the surface where the organic material is, there's certain microbes and things that live there. Down deeper, there's different ones. And down deeper, there's different. And there's this layered thing. And when you take and you turn that over, you're burying deep underground where it can't get oxygen and stuff, stuff that needed that top layer. And you're throwing up on top stuff that's not going to survive well there. And so you want to cooperate. and maintain the strata of your soil as much as possible so you want to loosen without turning it over you know the epitome of the old way if you watch the plow you know as they have the oxen or the horses out front and they've got this big metal blade and you got the handles and you walk behind the oxen as this blade cuts through everything right here and it's curled so it just cur- curls and turns over as you keep going right there um let's uh and, of course, we have a lot of mechanized versions of that we now put behind our tractors. Uh, the rototiller is really a... I have a, had a rototiller, and I've rototilled lots of gardens, and I fought behind that thing trying to keep it going right there, and, but now I don't rototill anything anymore. I even had a small tractor and had a rototiller behind that, and I'd rototill the whole bed, just drive down it, and then I didn't have to fight with that handheld rototiller, and now uh, I don't even do that. Um, If you're not familiar with it, you see this instrument here? It's called a broad fork. How many of you know what a broad fork is? Good, good, more of you do right here. Um, But basically there's this metal bar here and then there's two handles that come up and there's some little metal tines on the bottom here. And uh, you take that out, stand it up there where you want to uh, loosen up the soil for a garden bed there. And then you step on it and you press those tines down into the soil, force them down into the dirt. And then you start pulling back on it. Pull back farther till you complete the, And as the tines come up, they can loosen the dirt and break it up. But you haven't turned it over. So you've loosened it without uh, spending the layers there. Then you step back a step and do the same thing over again and now you've got another step and you just keep stepping back and just within a few minutes the entire bed you've just stepped back turned down step back turned down and the whole bed has been loosened without being turned over and you know i do that maybe once a year or once every other year it's not like i'm out there every time i need to plant some seeds i've got to go loosen up the bed that's uh, uh, way way beyond necessary uh, but loosening once in a while i still do a little bit so and then the organic material to grow on top of it. You know, a thick layer of, you know, if you haven't got a compost pile, hope you go home and start making one, however small or big or whatever space you've got, however you put it together. Um, this one, there's lots of ways to make compost. Uh, the bottom layer line is, principle is you throw all the organic material you've got in there and you let it do its thing. There'll be molds, there'll be bacterias, there'll be worms. Um, You know, somebody said you had to buy worms to put in. I don't know, worms just came. Uh, They're still out there. Bacteria's still around, mold is still around. You know, God designed this stuff. It survived for 6,000 years without us uh, transplanting it and culturing it. And uh, the seeds are still out there, and the worms are still somewhere. And uh, you, you build it, they will come. (laughs) Um, but uh, there's lots of different containers and shapes and ways to do it Um, simple recipe I've seen some people use I follow it very loosely not really rigidly they said well you've kind of have for your fresh green rotting material like fresh greens or kitchen compost and stuff you want an equal amount of carbonaceous material, that would be your dry, like straw, uh, old leaves, um, you know, carbon, those kind of things there that go in it. Uh, So it starts right here in my house. There's, I've got this little pail, before that I used to just have a bowl sitting by the sink, but then I got one of these, and that's a lot more uh, attractive than having a bowl of peelings and whatever, you know, when you're on a vegan diet well there's lots of vegetable scraps as you peel and prepare your vegan food they all go in here and this fills up very quickly Uh, you know one meal is about enough to fill it up usually your debris from one meal anything in the refrigerator that's old and been there too long and you're saying "Ah, i'm not going to eat this it goes in here any kind of rottable, compostable organic matter goes in here you know, something sets up here too long and starts to go rotten, it goes in here, um, gets thrown out into the compost pile here, here we're just starting, we would cleaned it out and starting over again, you see some garbage, here's some old moldy bread and stuff. Cardboard, um, brown paper, cardboard is just as good as straw or leaves or that, type. it's old carbonation, it's the fibers of the tree they have been made into that. I don't use the ones that are printed with shiny, glossy stuff on one side. The inks, the pigments they put in them, often have uh, compounds in them. You know, they're things that are toxic. Uh, you know, cadmium, you know, is one. Cadmium's poisonous, you don't want that. They use aluminum compounds in some. Um, lead compounds are used in some of the paints. And so I've kind of said, well, let me not just... You know, put all these heavy metals or things I don't want in my garden. There, the inks that are used, like this color ink here, and these inks that are using this brown stuff, these more tr- are usually us uh, like soy-based inks and stuff like that. There's, I don't think there's any problem with those on there, even in the colored inks. It's the ones they print on that glossy kind of, you know, some packaging comes with nice glossy printing on it and full-color pictures and stuff. So that goes out in the trash at my house, but uh, this uh, goes. Uh, in here and uh, you know here's old uh, pine needles and leaves going in there citrus you know somebody told me you can't compost citrus You, you can't put any citrus in your compost pile Well, we have a lot of citrus trees and you wouldn't believe how much grapefruits and oranges we go through. We, I juice them on a uh, regular basis, and it's like every day there's a couple of pails worth of citrus going out there, and it turns blue and moldy, starts to disintegrate down. The worms come in and finish it off. It's all oh, getting digested, getting ready to feed the garden there. And you just keep piling on layers. I try to, uh, whenever I throw out fresh garbage, put a fork full of straw or pine needles or something on top of it, just so I don't have a lot of raw garbage sitting out there. But sometimes it doesn't matter. The raccoons come up and dig up whatever you put in there anyway. Um, Straw is another thing that I've used fairly extensively in the, uh, this is a different. I just took some old pallets here, had them, tacked together in a square right here to support the uh, uh, compost pile there, but here I've got a bunch of straw. was dumping in there. Some pine trees on the other side of my fence here. I'd come back with the pitchfork, dig up a whole bunch of these pine needles here, throw those in there. Pine cones don't compost, or at least not in your lifetime, you know. So, uh, pine cones make great fire starters, but uh, they, they, I wouldn't put them in your compost pile. Um, here, cleaning out this, I've got the wheelbarrow full of old. Uh, and this I just cleaned out. This was uh, sweet potato vines. We dug up the sweet potato vines and the sweet potatoes under them, and uh, all of that. Just pile it in there. Don't worry about. You know, some people talk a lot about mixing and chopping and all that kind of stuff and making compost. You don't have to do all of that. Just throw it all in there. By next spring, it'll all be uh, composted. All of those vines, you don't have to cut them up. They'll just the bugs and everything will chop them up for you. Um, even the thick woody stems of you know old kale that's been growing for a year or two. Uh, you know, throw those in. When you're digging out the compost, if there's a few uncomposted pieces that are too big chunks or whatever, eh, just toss them back in. Next year, they'll be finished composting, you know, and move on with your compost. You don't have to do a lot of preparing of material to go in. And you don't have to do mixing, you know, gotta mix everything together good so we got all the things mixed together. The bugs will mix it, things will move around. As one bug crawls up here, he's covered with bacteria, and he drops a bacteria off up here and moves down there. Uh, The materials will move from one area to the other. You know, water will percolate stuff down. God's got a lot of little microscopic uh, and not-so-microscopic workers out there moving stuff around there for you. The raccoons seem to think they need to work on my pile for me every time. And i found they're not eating the garbage, they're eating my earthworms. You know, but uh, in spite of their harvesting my earthworms, every time I go in the pile, it's still full of earthworms, you know. Earthworms know how to multiply, and they, when you put this kind of food for them there, they just really go good. Uh, now, if you happen to have some chickens, and uh, have a little chicken yard right there, you've got another way of composting here. You just throw all your garden scraps and everything out in the chicken yard, and the chickens just go for that stuff. You know, They pass it through their body, and now you've got this chicken straw out there, covered with all of their chicken droppings chicken straw is great for the garden or the compost pile Uh, you know you can just spread it on top of your garden as it is you know it's all this organic straw plus the chicken droppings in there and that's really great stuff um, a lot of times my daughter will clean out the chicken pen and all this stuff and she just puts a big pile of it right beside my compost pile and every time I throw garbage or something in, I throw in a forkful or two of this chicken straw and cover it up and it's a way of mixing. But a lot of ways to use uh, the chicken straw there to uh, add that organic material to uh, your garden there. There again you see some And you can spread just fresh straw that hasn't. You know, been in the chicken house, you can just get some of those bales of straw, spread the straw out. You you can cut old weeds down, you know. Yeah, there's weed seeds in them, but, you know, when you're gardening this way, weeds don't seem to be that much of a problem. You know, just pull them out a few here and there and they come right out because everything is so loose and soft. You've got such a thick layer of organic material you're putting on top of everything. One year here, I made a uh, compost bin here. I took hay bales and just stacked them up in a square here, and then making this hollow square. And then I did all my composting material inside of there. And over the year, as the compost uh, composted down and stuff, these hay bales also kind of started rotting and composting down. And by the time the year was over, I was ready to un- you know, take all the compost out and spread it on the garden, on top of the garden beds here. Well these hay bales are half rotted too, you spread them on there as mulching right there, or throw them in a pile and put them in the, on top of your next year's one if they're still really together. So it all gets recycled, it all goes in its time there. You can see the beds here with their thick layer of organic material on top of them from a previous compost pile there. Um, so you start, getting here you can see I've got some stuff here that I'm just throwing on top of the next year's, and I, started now I've opened up this one here it had an end on right here with just a couple of bolts and so you just go out, take out the four bolts lift that end off and now I can just go in there and shovel out you know kind of break it loose with the thing shovel it out throw it in the wheelbarrow take it over to spread it on top of the uh, garden beds Uh, you know closer up what it's looking like there's twigs and stems in there and that's no problem the only mulching material it'll continue its composting on top of your garden bed Once you spread that layer out there, it won't last you a year. By the time your first crop on there is done, you're saying, where'd all that compost go? Yeah, the bugs worked it all down into the soil. It's all down in there. It's being used. It's being in that cycle that God has designed to work in the forest. It's working there for you. But here's what it's been doing in the compost pile there. And... uh, you know, it's near the top, see, it's still all like this, but down here it's more like that, and it's just all this fine brown crumbly stuff right here. And if you look at it real close, there must be thousands of earthworms in every single shovel full of compost. Um, you know, worms as they process this. By the way, the the worms don't like so much the fresh garbage as they like the much more rotted, partway done garbage. You'll find, you know, it's the old rotted ones that are kind of coming. That's what they like, and as they process through that body, you know, there's all of these different type of substances that are created in their digestive tract, and so the worm droppings, which become part of this here, is, is it processes through the worm's body. It is, again, creating and preparing compounds that are just, your plant roots just love that kind of stuff. That's what they live on. They just suck everything they need out of that, and, oh, they just grow so great when they get all of that there. Um, but, yeah, in spite of the raccoons having a feast here, they, the worms just keep doing their thing. God makes a lot of excess, you know? I mean... If you've grown zucchini, you you can't just grow enough zucchini for yourself to eat. There's no way you can eat the zucchini that you grow. And you start finding the same thing is true with all of these greens. Once they start growing, you can't eat that many greens. (laughs) They just grow so vigorous and fast. I mean, even things like peaches. I mean, I've got this little orchard out in front. Well, little. It's actually got 50 trees in it. Each one, each tree is different, a different variety. And even one of those trees, it, all of these great plums or peaches or whatever is growing on it, and I'm picking all of our counters are piled full, and the tree is still full. And you're trying to give them away, and pretty soon they're rotting and falling on the ground, and you've got this whole layer of fruit that you couldn't even give away. And, and every tree is doing that in its sequence throughout the season. And What's your address? I, I showed you on the map back there, that map. It's Central you know central california can get really hot in the summer but you know what everything grows there year round i mean it's summer winter spring fall Uh, My counter, starting in the spring with cherries, apricots, then peaches, plums, and it goes through on all the stone fruit and those type of things, as you move towards fall, uh, more pears and apples, uh, although we have one early apple that comes in the middle of July, but uh, then the other, more apples and pears as you move into fall. And uh, there's still, I've got a late plum that comes, you know, in middle of September, an emerald butte plum. I don't know if any of you have that. It's my favorite of all the plums. It's green on the outside, but the inside is kind of a golden color, a mellow, sweet, delicious flavor. Oh, it's just the most fantastic plum. And uh, as it um, moves into there, then persimmons. And the persimmons, before the persimmons are done, the citrus is coming on, you know, tangerines first, oranges by Christmas, and then uh, grapefruits usually best starting in February. Although I've got a friend that's got something called a Mellow Gold. It's a pomelo across and it goes. You know, I pick, I go at Christmas, and he's got all these excess trees. I load my car full, and it still hasn't dented his orchard. You know, so I have those piled up, and I'm juicing those every day, and and throwing the rinds out in my compost pile. But, uh, yeah, the way God designed the world, if we lived from the garden, I mean, if you think, if you took a city and replaced all of the landscaping with edible landscaping, if we used nut trees instead of shade trees, if we used fruit trees around the house for shading, you know, instead of growing lawns, we were growing gardens. Do you realize what that would do to the health of a community? You would grow in a community enough to totally make everybody well, reverse uh, diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, you, you'd put the, the uh, health system out of business in that town, you know. Uh, I, I mean, God's given us all this stuff, we just don't do it His way anymore. But if we go back to the Eden plan, like your song said, uh, um, He's got a better plan, it works better there. Here you can see right here, I've taken a garden bed spot right here, and I've just laid out a thick layer of compost. That's four to six inches thick of stuff I dug out of the compost bed there. Um, My son is not into gardening. He won't have a thing to do with gardening. My son's into horses. But, you know, his horses are into composting. You see, they take this... uh, He he buys all of this alfalfa, and hay, and uh, stuff right there, and then they process it through there. And he ends up with piles and piles of horse manure thrown out there. He puts it out by my orchard there by the nut trees. And uh, of course, I uh, got uh, large amounts of this. Whatever organic material you can get uh, comes back. I bring lots of this back here. Here's Now, I've done two garden beds with compost. This one on top, of about four to six inches of compost. I spread another four inches of horse manure. You know, we live in a world where more and more and more of it is being contaminated and made more difficult. All the more reason to make our own organic stuff as safe as. I know my son. He uses. He gets this stuff. It's. It's. it's he calls it grass fed. It's. It's. Uh. Like. Bermuda grass or something. I don't know what kind of grass it is. Some kind of grass that grows. And they uh, shut up and bind it up. So it wasn't the usual hay that's made. I'm not sure. I don't think they spray anything on it. Uh, But I don't know. I, I don't know for sure. But the horse manure from his... He takes alfalfa seeds and grinds them up in the kitchen in my, a coffee grinder and adds them to his horse feed for his horses. He's quite into taking care of his horses. So he's into his horses. I'm into my garden, but uh, uh, his horses do uh, help out my garden. <laughs> yeah, the GMO stuff, I mean, the, the, one of the major genetic modifications they make is this Roundup Ready gene. And so then they go and spray the glyphosate on their... uh, I've got a friend of mine. He's a farmer. And uh, he's that really great, really intelligent, smart guy. But he was coming down with peripheral neuropathy in his legs. And uh, now this guy, I know him well, and he eats healthy. He's not totally vegan, but... He eats a little fish once in a while, but he lives on plants. He doesn't drink sodas and junk food and sugar. He really has a very healthy diet. He's not coming down with diabetic neuropathy just because I know him well enough to know, hey, you know, and to look at him, he's out all day long in the field doing stuff. Um, and he was getting peripheral neuropathy. And I said, well, you know, that could be Roundup neuropathy. Because do you know how Roundup works? It's a chelating agent. We talked a little bit about chelating this morning, how certain things chelate with magnesium. But a chelator is a molecule that binds up one of these metal molecules. And Roundup is a chelator. And it chelates zinc, and chromium, and manganese and molybdenum, and it basically can bind up all of these essential trace elements. And so when you spray Roundup on the plant and it soaks into the plant, what's it doing? It's chelating up all of these ions. Well, like we talked this morning, remember the enzymes that need these molecules? Well, if they're all chelated up, there's none left. So none of the enzymes work. And the plant just withers, turns yellow, and dies because it's got no zinc anymore. It's got no chromium. It's got, you've totally just stripped the nutrients out of it with this chelating agent, this zinc. Well, now, if you've got Roundup-ready crops and you go spray Roundup on them and all the weeds die and the plants keep growing because they're Roundup-resistant, well, then what happens when you eat those plants if they've got Roundup residues on it? Or my farmer friend, if he's out spraying and, you know, using the herbicide on his field and spraying around there, if he's not careful when he's mixing or spraying or, you know, it's drifting on him or he gets it on his hands and it absorbs into his hands and stuff... He's starting to build it up. And of course, if we eat these genetically modified crops, we're starting to build up this chelate. Well, you start chelating up all of these elements that are needed by these enzymes, and all these enzymes aren't working. So now you've got all of these important parts of your body that aren't working because you've chelated up all the stuff in there. And uh, so I said, look, For one thing you've got to be super careful with roundup from now on you can't touch that stuff you've got to have gloves tevdex suit mask everything and uh, you know wash good afterward to make sure you're not absorbing any more of this stuff and then i put him on a trace element supplement you know that had just trace elements in it Uh, life extension makes it great so it's all kinds of zinc and chromium and all these trace elements here in a supplement just take one of these every morning every twice a day just keep taking these Within a few weeks, his peripheral neuropathy was gone. Because you see, you know what peripheral neuropathy is? It's in the axons of your neurons. Now, if you think about it, why is neuropathy hit your feet or your fingers first? Because those are the longest axons. In the, because where is the cell body? The cell bodies are in your spinal cord. So in your spinal cord, there's a cell. You know how small and microscopic these cells are. You can't see them with your eye, they're so small. But out of this cell that's so small, it comes in even smaller, little, teeny process coming out, like a little, teeny root coming out. And it goes all the way from your spinal cord down to your tip of your big toe. And every time you touch something with your toe, you feel that on a sensation. It's an electrical impulse traveling up there to the cell body up here. Well, now, how does the cell maintain the sensors on the end of that? Well, because in the cell body is where the nucleus is. That's where the codes is. And in the cell body, that code is read, And in the ribosomes, it translates into the uh, uh, various proteins, the neurotransmitters, the various uh, protein receptors, all these things that are needed down there in the tip. And how are they going to get all the way down that acts to the tip of your toe? Well, God realized, he's a great uh, logistician, and he says we need a transportation system here. And so we put up a high-speed rail system inside every axon. And there's these little proteins that come to them, they call them we call them microfibrils. They're like just little cables that run down there. And these cables, there's just a whole bunch of them, like a bundle of these inside every little axon that run all the way from the cell body to your toe. And then there's these little things that are like little... Little engines, I call them, for the railroad. And they will actually take packages of what things that are needed down there, various neurotransmitters and things like that that are needed in your toe. They're manufactured. And inside the body you manufacture inside this thing called the endoplasmic reticulum, or the Golgi. Ep- it's like a little membrane and it's all taking place in this little space. And then you just sort of bubble off the piece of this membrane. And so you end up with this little package full of all this stuff it just made there from the code that came from the nucleus. And... This little engine attaches onto this little package of whatever was manufactured there. So you've got the engine and the the you know, like a semi-truck, you've got the tractor on the front and the trailer on the back. So you got this little package all together. And then once you put that on, that little engine, it latches onto one of those little railroad tracks, those little microphones, and just tick, 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 it just just zoomed. It's got a little thing, it just clicks on the next piece like this, over and over, a little repeating thing, little, 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 it's just zooms down that track all the way to the tip of your toe, and delivers the material there. Problem is, we need some of these uh, metal ion, different types, zinc and molybdenum, uh, selenium, these kind of things to make some of these parts work. And when you don't have those parts and these things, these things jam up and don't work. In diabetes, it's too much sugar, you're glycating the protein. You know, in diabetes, how they measure the hemoglobin A1C, that's hemoglobin that's got a sugar molecule stock on it because there was too much. Well, it doesn't just stick on hemoglobin. That's just an easy place to measure it for the lab. But uh, it's sticking on proteins all over your body, and it starts sticking on those little railroad cars. And they, once you, ch- you change the structure, you change the function. And, of course, the only way you change the function is from functioning to non-functioning. And so now you've got all these dead cars stuck on the track. And it's all jammed up. But God can repair all of that. Uh, so anyway, back to the garden here. We've got the... Uh, you're just putting all this stuff out here. It's natural. It's growing there. Um, fortunately, um, I guess what my son is feeding his horses isn't full of a Roundup because the garden seems to be just growing fantastically. I a matter of fact, I'll take that leftover manure there and a garden bed like over here where there's stuff growing and the, it's like the compost has all disappeared already or almost gone... I'll just take and throw a whole bunch of that you know, in between and around the stems and stuff in there. So replenish that layer, sort of just, just take the shovel, just kind of send it in there, get it in there. Keeping a nice layer of organic material on top of the grounds at all times. Uh, And then, of course, you can plant her. Here's one they've put on. I've ended up putting some straw. That was either chicken straw or regular straw. I don't remember. But there's straw on top of this one here. I've added some more organic material. Here you can see I've thrown some compost in around there, getting a spot ready there. And then you plant in that. And you don't really want to plant so much up in the mulchy material. You know, if you've got these little plants you got from the nursery, the little teeny seedlings, you know, like you're talking about, you want to plant in there. Take your trout, dig down at least enough through there so you get at least the bottom of the roots into the soil underneath. Plants still need to grow in soil. The roots need to grow in soil. This is the stuff you will want on top of the ground. And so you want to, if you need to pull the stuff back a little bit to get that plant started down in there. I don't sprinkle seeds on top of here, although you'll find that your compost will be full of seeds that sprout and grow just fine. Uh, Matter of fact, when I need to plant greens now, it's almost like I just spread compost, and before I even get to planting anything, it's full of kale and chard and everything coming up, and you just weed and thin a little bit, and I've got a bed of greens coming up, you know. Mixed greens of all varieties because, well, I threw all the old plants in there, so there's their seeds in there. And the ones that went here are spread around on the ground, so there's seeds everywhere of all this stuff. Uh, and then, of course, you water it, and it grows. Uh, here you see those same two beds. Notice I put some little pepper plants there. By the way, this was an experiment, the first year of an experiment, and I can tell you uh, this is only half big enough for pepper plants. Um, next year I'm gonna make it about twice that tall, up to way up to here. Because the plants grow up through and they keep growing and growing and growing and growing. You know, this is really good growing, and they just fall over and break because it wasn't big enough. So my neighbor that welded this for me, he's gonna weld another one for me that's twice as big the next year for this one here. Um, but the little pepper plants, see them growing up through the mesh there, keep growing up through there, keep growing and growing. And then of course pretty soon you start seeing this showing stuff showing up in there. You know, the roots are growing down in the soil underneath there. And of course the soil underneath there. The soil in this spot right here, when I moved in there, was yellow, white, dead dirt that nothing would grow in. I mean, even the weeds had a hard time growing. And I just started putting, within a few years, it's black, crumbly, loose stuff, because all of this organic material, the bugs put it down in there, but not just the bugs. What else puts it down there? The roots. I mean, when a plant grows, there's as much roots underground as there is leaves on top of ground, right? And at the end of the season, when I pull the plant out, even if I pull it up by the roots, I'm only getting the top big roots. There's all kinds of little root fibers down in there that stay in the ground and die and compost and become part of the uh, organic uh, garden there. Uh, Peppers, the biggest bell pepper I've ever seen in my life pulled out of there last summer. I just... It shocked me it could grow so big. But that's, you know, that's just the organic. Uh, Seeds, get them from the nursery. You can save and collect your own seeds. Uh, There's some beet seeds there. Chard seeds look very similar to that. Uh, Plant the seeds out there. If you're going to start saving seeds, of course, and I'm sure more people will talk more detail about this, but uh, things (laughs) cross-pollinate. So if you're growing kale, growing all of these great varieties of kale and cabbage and other related things back there, they're all going to cross-pollinate and your seeds are not going to be really good for next year's crops. But if you want to save your seeds, then if you've got those, make sure you cut off the tops and you only let one variety bloom, you know. If you're gonna get some red Russian kale, then you make sure everything else doesn't bloom. You keep cutting the tops off. You have to go out there regular so that there's nothing to cross-pollinate of you know, those varieties you're... There's some uh, parsley. Just pull the tops off here. Smash rub in your hands when they get a little bit dry and the seeds come off. You don't have to clean the seeds. If you got a bunch of little twigs and sticky stuff in there, when you go to plant them, when you get this many seeds, I mean, it's not like you've got a little package and I've only got 12 seeds and I've got to make every seed count. I mean, you just sprinkle them out there and you're going to have to thin them, you know. And so and if you get a little more composting material to go in with them, no problem. So it's a very simple, quick process there. The seeds sprout and grow. Here there's some soil. This isn't a heavy layer of compost. This was, I think, after I had already grown one crop here and pulled it out. And I didn't add a compost. I didn't pull the compost pot. So I just the compost that was in there and spread the seeds on that. And I'll go back maybe between rows here and throw in a few handfuls of stuff there. Russian kale coming up there. If you get the little plants, like I mentioned, you'll want to make sure the roots can get down to the dirt in there. Uh, We really don't grow in mulch, we grow in the soil. There again, again, pulling the mulchy manure and stuff back a little bit so the plants are down in the soil As you get the roots in the soil when you get them started there while they're, well, they're taken off but it's really simple just keep spreading lots of compost and organic material water it and uh, and like i said if you're growing greens plants for greens spinach kale all this kind of stuff these green stuff this is what i call winter crop stuff although even where it's hot here the swiss chard stuff will do good all summer kale can survive, but it doesn't do as well once it gets real hot. Plant food everywhere. this little spot by the pool, and I was going to put this little, uh, this is a mandarin orange tree, a dwarf mandarin orange tree that should fill up this spot right here. Well, I had all this empty space, so there's some broccoli. I just planted, blo- it makes great landscaping while well, you've got some empty space to fill it in there. Um, got- great broccoli and after you pull the tops you keep getting the side shoots and all kinds of great stuff by the way this is a few years ago this tree now completely fills this little spot here i get the best uh, mandarin oranges off of it they're ripe right now Uh, my front yard i used to have this beautiful green lawn out there and then our well went dry and it was more than two months till we could get a well driller in there because everybody's well was growing dry and uh, so um to get a deeper well and stuff. And so this lawn completely died. And so of all, instead of taking all the expense to put a lawn, a new, new lawn back in, I just covered it over with a layer of bark chips and stuff and started planting garden stuff. My wife wasn't real pleased with that idea, but since she wasn't doing the yard work, and I was, uh, she has conceded to that. And now our front yard is full of food <laughs> instead of a lawn. And... Uh, you know, it just, this, this, the, the front yard is full of, uh, the front yard was more open to sunlight, you know, the backyard had that big tree, great for greens and stuff, but the front yard is really great, but they'll get a little sunlight and, you know, squash grows out there and tomatoes and eggplants and, you know, you start, you plant something, it just can't. As a matter of fact, once I grew the eggplants one year, next year, You know, because there had been a lot of them that rotted and dried and fell on the ground. You know how many seeds is in an eggplant? There are so many eggplants coming up, you just have to thin them. It's not like you have to transplant You just thin them out and you still just, uh, you know, more eggplants than you can use. Squash. And, of course, if you plant zucchini, it won't be long till it will be open season on zucchini. Got to cull the herd. Uh, There are just too many of them out there uh some people like to use uh you know box raised beds boxes uh works great but you don't have to i mean they do work fine on the ground Uh, i put these right by my back door i thought this would be a great kitchen garden i just step out my door and you don't have to bend over you can just kind of sit here at the edge of this and work it and it's going to be a great thing and it was growing really good and then my wife said well we could put a sunroom right here and so all the beds got torn out and loose so i lost all the beds so you know, plan ahead, <laughs> can't plan ahead for everything in life. So um, grow your greens, the, the, you know, the health of the things you're gonna get from here is so awesome compared to what you're gonna get from the store, you know, and particularly when we're talking about the greens, you know, that broccoli thing, you can replete that for kale or spinach or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, if you see mushrooms, by the way, that's a sign you're doing a good, the right thing. If mushrooms are growing, that means there's mycelium working. That means they've got material to work on. They're processing, they're making food for your roots. Um, that's a sign things are going to do well. Um, keep spreading the mulch even after your garden's coming up. Spread more organic material, spread straw, spread manure, spread old leaves. If you've got somewhere you can go out where there's old tre- trees or whatever and just gonna scrape up all the old leaves under them somewhere and bring them back and pile them in here. Yes. How I pick the greens. You know, I usually just grab and snap them off. I run out there. Sometimes I have a pair of scissors with me, and I'll snip depending on what it is I'm cutting. Sometimes I take a little knife if I'm doing broccoli and broccoli stems, but they can be snapped off too. It's pretty simple. I don't have a complex uh, harvesting. I usually just take a colander or a basket. I got some grass baskets that were woven in Africa, and they're really great. They're good size, and I just pull off the stuff and throw them in there. And of course, I always pull off a whole couple of big handfuls of fresh greens to throw in for the chickens. So they don't get too much chicken feed. And most of what they get some kind of scratch feed or something there and we just throw them lots of this garden stuff and they gobble that up. Green peas growing this time. There's, I just saved some seeds from the previous year. You plant them, again, in my area we plant peas in the October. And here you see them come up on the fence. I just tacked up some metal wire, you know, this kind of concrete reinforcing wire that comes in like about a six inch square. Just nailed some of that up on the fence and they grow and climb up that. And pretty soon you've just got more peas than you can eat. And you're giving peas away. Cabbages, coming all different varieties grow different sizes when they make their heads there. Uh, lettuce. I grow the lettuce like this and I leaf pick it rather than head cut the lettuce. You just go out and pick ever, enough leaves to fill up a basket and you've got a whole great salad and tomorrow you come out you can't see where it was missing and every day you can go out there and you just keep cutting the salad and you still can't tell where it's missing and you get a delicious salad every day and it's just uh, a great way to get greens. Yeah, My favorite red Russian kale, uh, some Chinese cabbages. That Is some volunteer kale. This was, you know, I thought it was pure seed, but obviously there's some. You see, some of them have flatter leaves, some of them have the more frilly leaves. More little genetic variation there. Still great stuff. Cauliflower, cabbage, that all part. There's a radish there. That radish. That's only half of the radish. This particular radish, it was a volunteer that came. I don't know where the seed came from. And it was the most, you know, some radishes are real hot, and this was almost mild and sweet, milder than a jicama, I mean, it was like, garlic's another one I plant in the fall, and of course, there's harvested little onion sets you put out, artichokes grow year after year, and again, I usually set them out in the fall, but in the spring, they're really heading out there. broccolini's these purple ones are really cool they don't grow a big central head they just grow lots of these little side shoots that you pick off and uh, when you cook them the purple disappears they are all green again (laughs) the peas do I rotate not in a any organized pattern it's kind of wherever the next empty spot in it goes there You know, with composting, I'm really rotating with every sort of thing. You know, when you plant bare dirt and, you know, the plant takes a certain nutrient out, it's gone. And I put so much organic material in, there's never a deficiency of anything. So you don't really have to rotate. You know, in the forest, things sort of just don't rotate. They just keep growing in the same communities they grow in every year. Yes. You know, in China, if you go to the market and you bring some produce to sell, if it's got bug holes in it, you get a better price and people prefer it because they know it's safer. They know that if you bring a bunch of greens and there's no bug holes on it, you've been spraying poison on it or something, and they won't buy it. No, uh. Uh-uh. You, you wanna bring produce that's got bug holes in it there. It hasn't caught on here yet, but... Uh, <laughs> it. it You know, in your own backyard garden, when you're doing the picking, I would let it catch on, you know. And if there's a patch of aphids on the back of the leaf, well, I usually tear off that spot. You know, when the aphids cover the whole plant, or I get white flies on them at a certain season, and uh, then, you know, well, then it's time to uh, pull it out and toss it in the compost pile, or toss it to the chickens before they go to the compost pile. So uh, that's sort of my approach to bugs. Uh, We work together there. You know, one year, you know, I've always had trouble. Once it starts getting hot, the white flies and aphids come. And one year, my garden just kept growing lush and green. There was no aphids, there was no white flies, there was no anything. And it wasn't until I was sitting out under that oak tree in that chair reading a book one afternoon, and the neighbor, there's a peach orchard over there. And he was spraying his peaches, one of those fan jet sprayers. And now there there was a whole three rows of orange trees between me and the fence, and then there's a road, and then his field is way over there. So, it wasn't anywhere near. And there really wasn't a wind blowing that day that I could notice. And I was sitting out there and all of a sudden my arms are all covered with this damp mist. And I'm hearing his tractor over there doing that fan jet spray, and I thought, oh dear. I went in a house and washed off, but then I realized why well, I didn't have any white flies or aphids that year. So, now I had to wash my greens too. So if you don't have any bugs on them, you better wash them. You don't know what's on them. <laughs> and if you want to get my newsletters, the, uh, all the past ones, they're under resources on the Secrets Unsealed website, secretsunsealed.org. And on their homepage, there's a place to subscribe. If you subscribe, you can get uh, the, uh, on their uh, mailing, mailing list and get my new articles when they come out. This media was brought to you by Audioverse